Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. If you read my book, which you're not required to do in order to listen to this podcast, but if you did, you know that I obsessed over the balance between ambition and peace of mind. You could argue, though, that I left out a key dimension, which is uh, how can you help fix the world's problems? In other words, how do you balance ambition with happiness and also with meaning? The the further I go into embracing Buddhism, which, again, I want to say, to be clear, I uh, see as uh, not something to believe in but something to do. Uh, but the further I go into embracing Buddhism, I sometimes wonder about whether I'm, I'm actually living in alignment with my, what I claim to be my values. I mean, even that phrase, living in alignment with my values, has a certain sort of uh, after-school special vibe to it. Um, it's because it's hard to talk about helping the world without lapsing into very annoying cliches. Uh, and which brings me my, to my guest today, who's put a lot of thought into this very issue and has come up with some really interesting approaches. His name is Colin Bevan. You may know him from his rather famous book and documentary project called No Impact Man, where he attempted to live here in New York City with minimal impact on the planet. He followed up with a book called How to Be Alive, which is a really interesting twist on the self-help genre. He calls it Each Other Help. Also, he's a senior Dharma teacher in the Zen tradition. So uh, he's got a lot to add to, to the conversation I'm having in my own head. Colin, thanks for coming in, man. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's great to see you. Likewise. So let me start with the question I always start with, which is how did you come to meditation? It's funny because when I first, I had a girlfriend who meditated and um, it really annoyed me. <laughs> I couldn't, what's the point of that sitting still doing that? Um, and, and, and we broke up. <laughs> and uh, and uh, some years later, um, I actually, uh, I, was, I was living in Providence, Rhode Island. And this guy was telling me about this Zen master, Sung San, who is a Korean monk who'd come over to the United States. And, um, and, and my friend was telling me, he says that you must wash your mind with don't know soap. <laughs> and I thought, that's really cool. And then he also told me that this monk said, uh, this body is just a rental car. Big question. Who drives this rental car? And I thought... I like that. And so I started going to the Zen group and uh, sitting and meditating, and that was 24 years ago. So you were, how old are you now? I'm 53. Okay. So you were in your... I was 29. Early, yeah. Okay. Saturn returns, the astrologer said. It's, 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 it's just when you're having a life crisis and wondering what the hell you're doing, or, or quarter life crisis is another way to put it. So pretty young guy, got into it, and you got really into it. Yeah, I, I mean, at first I, I was around the fringes, but for the last, say, 15 years, I, you know, I, I sit week-long retreats. I'm a teacher in my school. I do meditation instruction. And yeah, it's, it's a big part of my life, an important part. When you say teacher in my school, what do you mean by that specifically? So I'm, there are a bunch of different uh, Zen schools or, or sanghas in the United States that come down from different traditions, most of them from Asia. Um, mine comes from, originally comes from Korea, and it's called the Kwanam School of Zen. Um, and I, uh, to be a teacher in, in, in our school means that you help other, other students with their meditation practice, that you answer some life questions, and also that you help to uh, administer, do, do administration jobs around the temple or, or, or help to run, run retreats, run practice, that type of thing. Uh, and so how, how much daily practice do you do? Um, I 
Generally, I meditate 40 minutes every day. Sometimes, sometimes uh, life interferes. Um, sometimes I'm on retreat, in which case I might be meditating 12 hours in a day. But I have a very, quite a very regular committed practice. And what does Zen practice l- look like? What is? It? I know there are lots of flavors of Zen practice. So what do you do in so, your school? First of all, let's say. Let, let me just say, what is Zen? And 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 Zen in itself is basically a, a discipline in which we we try to understand ourselves as as human beings. Zen is understanding yourself. So what am I? And um, so in. Do you have an answer to that question? I'm the person sitting here talking to you. <laughs> and that's about as much as I know. <laughs> so you answer it in the sort of gerundial, like sort of like ING. Uh... It's actually, it's, it's, it's not so much the, the words of the question, what am I, that's so important, but the, the question mark itself in it in a, in a certain way, the kind of spirit of constant inquiry of when ideas about your life and what you are come up in your mind, that you actually don't believe the story that they're telling you necessarily, but see them as phenomenon. The thoughts themselves are phenomenon just as just as much as this microphone in front of my mouth is a phenomenon. They're just things. They're not me. So this question, what am I, that, you know, re- really ends up in a place of not knowing. And and the the concept in our in our school and in this end tradition is that when you don't know, that is to say, when you put down all the stories that you have about your life and you actually allow yourself to be and not knowing, then your intuition and that part of yourself that acts together with the world can actually rise up and be in, tro- in, in control and you can actually you can react to what's in front of you instead of the stories that you have about your life. And so what is, how does that translate into actual practice? So it, in, in sitting, um, I follow my breath. Um, and I keep a mantra. Uh, the mantra that I keep is Kwan Sam Bosal, which is Korean for Kwan Lin. It's the Bodhisattva of compassion. So as I'm sitting, I, I pay attention to my breath going in and out. And I also kind of mentally say to myself, Kwan Sam Bosal, Kwan Sam Bosal, Kwan Sam Bosal. And then I add, added to that is just a layer of, of what is this or who is this that is that's saying this mantra? Just, again, that, that inquiry, um, that desire to understand what it is that's happening. So is the mantra coordinated with the breath in any way? Some people do, and I do sometimes, and sometimes I don't. Lately, I haven't been. So it's a lot going on. You're feeling your breath and also saying this thing to yourself and then adding over it this layer of, of inquiry. Yeah, it's it's... But it doesn't feel like there's that that much going on. The mantra comes and goes, as you know, your attention comes and goes. But the, the level of inquiry, which is just like... Um, so in, in some ways, it's about actually when you're saying the mantra, not believing that that's it either. Like, oh, now I'm the perfect one that's saying the mantra and not thinking about anything else. But just having this curiosity, like, what is this? Just it's it's in some ways, it's just uh, a way of bringing our attention back to the moment because it's not about thinking about what what this is or what am I. It's not about coming up with conceptual conceptual answers, but actually pay attention and seeing and feeling and hearing what am I in this moment. I'm just trying to think. There's, there's, I've heard it said, and I'm trying to remember who, that it's like you you look for the mind, and in not finding it, because you can't find the mind, that's the finding. That's the thing. There's something, there, there's... Well, the thing. No, there's no in our, thing. In, right? our school, exactly. in our school, what we would say is the thing is sitting here talking to you. Like what the thing is 
right here, right now, what this is, what this is right now before our eyes and in our ears, that's the thing. We can see it. We can taste it. We can smell it. The thing is right here, and you don't have to add anything to it at all. And what, what, what people – I think the, the thing that people know you for the most is, is no impact, man. So I'm going to get you to describe what that was and better and better than I did in my introduction. And and also, I guess what I'm getting at here is to, to what extent did your Zen practice drive you toward that or were they disconnected? No, I, I think that if you practice um, long enough, we kind of think we kind of think that if you practice long enough, then you'll achieve this peace for yourself. Um, and, and in some ways, that's true. If you practice long enough, you achieve a certain amount of inner peace for yourself. But it also, because your, yourself, as it were, is more peaceful, you also become more sensitized to what isn't peaceful, which is the world. You know, your, your, your mind and your concerns about your selfish things um, don't go away, but become less quiet and you're less attached to them. And all of a sudden, your eyes open up to the suffering that you see around you. And, and so... Um, in my case, I was really uh, kind of obsessed with what was happening to our world because of two things. The Iraq War, which most people I think would agree was a war about oil now, and climate change. So we had what, what happened when you uh, – what we had to do to get the oil, which was war or since then, you know, the BP oil disaster or the Alberta tar sands or the North, North Dakota pipeline, the things that we're doing to get it. And then what happens when we burn it, which is the climate change. And in between, by the way, a, a way of life that even for the richest among us, I, wouldn't, I would argue is not as happy as it could be, leave alone for the, the poorest among us. So there was something wrong with the way we were living. And I thought, how can I draw attention to this? And, um, and I came up with this idea, well, maybe I should just worry about keeping my side of the street clean. And I thought, well, what would happen if I lived as environmentally as possible for the course of a year? And then I came up with this concept, No Impact Man, where um, me and my family, as it was then comprised um, of my uh, co-parent and my daughter, Isabella, and our dog, Frankie, 10 legs and a tail, I called us. <laughs> For the course of a year, we lived as environmentally as possible here in New York City. And there's a book about it and a film about it. And, and so how, how extreme was it? What, you know, the extreme is a funny word because yeah. um, people said, why do you have to be so extreme about it? And I, I would argue that, that, that actually a world in which we worry about who's going to build the next tallest skyscraper um, and not about the billion people who don't have access to clean drinking water, I would argue that that's an extreme society. And so the idea of actually living no impact um, in relation to that extreme society seems extreme, but but actually doing as much as you can to try to help the world, as it were, were as as it were, is is not actually so extreme. It's kind of it's kind of normal. I would say that the way we are forced to live societally is the extreme thing. But having said that, <laughs> for the last six months we lived without electricity. We we didn't eat any food that came from more than a hundred miles away. Uh, we didn't use any sort of transportation that caused carbon dioxide to be emitted. So it was um, it was at times austere. Do you still live that way? I say I say I'm not no impact man anymore. I'm medium impact man. Um, so I do. Uh, it, it turns out one of the big learnings of no impact man was that what I did and what we did in how we lived was not just good for the environment, it was good for us. So for example, when we got rid of the TV, something had to fill the hole, and it turns out that hanging with our friends filled the hole. Um, when we got rid of food that came from far away um, and uh, red meat, 
what it what what filled that hole was good fresh vegetables from nearby and food that was better for us. When we got rid of you know when I got rid of automa- automated transportation and I started walking and biking, I got exercise. And so those are the types of things that stay in my life. But it, the thing that I think it's is most important that I learned from No Impact Man and. Um, that I keep is uh, that I continue to use my voice, that I continue to dedicate my life and use my voice to help persuade people that they too can find a way of life that's both better for them and better for the world. So, so in preparing to talk to you, um, I should say we've been friends for a while and we uh, and uh, um, have an ongoing uh, conversation, which is uh, enriching to me at least. Um, and, and me, and me. Uh, in preparing to talk to you, I, I, I started to feel guilty, and actually, um, it, it actually came in. Um, conjunction with I've been taking this class through uh, what's called the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Barry spelled not like a dude's name, but B-A-R-R-E, which is in Barry, Massachusetts. And this um, they run these great classes online about uh, studying Buddhism. And, and um, recently, uh, the teacher of one of the courses said something in one of the videos I was watching that made me wonder whether like I'm a failed uh, Buddhist because my practice is so much about, you know, like me feeling better and calmer. Um, and uh, the teacher said something about uh, an essential ingredient on this path, and this is a quote, uh, is the aspiration to engage in this practice for the benefit not only of ourselves but for others as well. And I started to th- realize, you know, I do what's called loving-kindness meditation where you, you know, ostensibly at least are sending good vibes to all living beings. Um, uh, but I'm not sure uh, that um, I mean it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure, you know, they, they talk in Buddhism about dedicating all of the merit, uh, all the benefit accrued from your own practice to other people. And sometimes I feel a little stinginess around that, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm doing this for me. And uh, then there was a quote from the Buddha that I, I, I like. It said, just as from a cow comes milk, from milk curd comes curd butter, from butter ghee, uh, from butter ghee, and from ghee, cream of ghee, which is reckoned the foremost of all of these. So the person uh, practicing both for his own welfare and for the welfare of others is the foremost, the best, the preeminent, the supreme, the finest. And I realize, like, I'm not cream of ghee. Um, and so I, I, I put that to you. You know, my, do you think as a uh, Dharma teacher that I'm a failed Buddhist in this way? <laughs> Am I not cream of ghee? <laughs> you know, I, I actually, I, I've, I think we've known each other for a few years. And, 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 and you've posed this question to me in very... Various different ways. Like I, one time, I remember you asked me about a well-known Buddhist teacher who was getting divorced, and you seem a little, you seemed a little disappointed that somebody who, you know, did all that meditation, they they couldn't keep their marriage together. And you know, you ask these questions about whether you're a good enough guy or not. Well, for one thing, I, I actually experience you as 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 very kind, and and I've heard that a lot of other people experience you that way too. That just means I fooled you. That doesn't mean anything real. <laughs> Yeah, but it doesn't matter what you think about yourself. What matters is actually what, what, what you know. You you have thoughts that are coming up about yourself, about whether you're kind or unkind. But um, what I've seen in many many people, and I think I see in you too, is that the actual practice changes the way you behave, regardless of whether you think you're good or bad. So um, so so I would say no, Dan, you're you're not a failed Buddhist. But but the, but the, I don't think I'm unkind. But again, that just goes back to whether I'm you know like. Um, masquerading as kind, and 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 what the what that quote from the Buddha about the cream of ghee brings to mind is like: Is your practice really 
about not only benefiting you, but others and the whole world. And, and that's where I feel insecure. Are, are and you, you clearly, you've done, you uh, not only through No Impact Man uh, th- that, uh, and through also your book, which we'll get to, How, How to Be Alive, that your other book, uh, one of your other books, um, you, you really have this strong motivation to do things to heal the world. And I'm just wondering, and I think I speak for a lot of people listening to this, like, are we meditating for those reasons? And if not, are we missing something big? I'm I'm not sure. I I think that this is why in our school, this question of what am I becomes important. And and it's not actually a, a matter of coming up with uh, a word answer, a conceptual or a thinking answer to that. It's more about breaking down the thinking answers that we that we have. So, what am I? Well, I'm a dad. I'm a person. I'm a, you know, I'm a media figure or whatever. And actually, uh, w- watching as you're meditating, that when you ask this question, "What am I?" that a thought comes up, and that again, it's it's just a thought, until it gets to the point where slowly but surely the the kind of the kind of I itself begins to break down. And so, when thoughts come up like I want this and I want that come up. Those two break down and we are actually in a place where we can we don't have to act from our most greedy and selfish thoughts and we find ourselves automatically acting from a more compassionate place. And and people do that in all sorts of situations like there's the there's the Buddhist story of the 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 butcher who um, one of Buddha, one of I, I always forget the names from the Buddhist story, so I don't know which one this is. But one of Buddha's disciples comes through town, and this butcher is really upset and says, "You know, um, I, how can I possibly get enlightenment? I'll never be able to get enlightenment because I'm a butcher, and because of the caste system at the time, once a butcher, always a butcher." And this particular butcher also had three children to feed, so it wasn't like he could just go off. And um, and so the disciple of Buddha just said said to this butcher at all times in all places when you're butchering when you're taking care of your children just pay attention and hold this curiosity what am I what's the truth of this existence and don't believe any thoughts that arise in your mind about it and so this butcher had this kind of all day meditation practice and because of this practice slowly but surely he found like when 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 somebody came with um with a with a cow to be slaughtered but he saw that the cow had a calf that was too young to lose its mother he wouldn't slaughter that particular cow or when poor people came he would give them some meat or so even though he was in this position which was you know by so-called buddhist standards because he actually killed the people for a living not people animals for a living and the first precept is do not kill even though he killed he actually killed if you like in a kinder and better way now <clears throat> there's an important point that comes from this because Sometimes, and and we might talk about this some more, I know, but sometimes in the Buddhist community, we make the mistake of thinking that our Buddhist practice, the point of our Buddhist practice is only about interpersonal kindness. Like, it's only about whether I say please and thank you to you and am generous to you without actually thinking about the wider world and the systems that we're involved in. So, so th- th- you know, that's, an, that's another point, that, that we can then take that kindness and actually s- look for the places to be kind and to, for example, look at the fact that we live in a, a racist society and that how can we change the systems as well as opposed to just being kind to each other. Yeah, well, I think that, that that's of a piece of what I'm getting at here, which is I think that I just speak for myself here as a meditator. I, I wonder whether this is a deficit and I wonder whether this is a deficit for a lot of people who are practicing for stress relief or to be more focused, to be more effective because the science says it's good for you, that actually 
you know that that seems pretty far removed from what uh, the dude who invented this practice was really driving at. Well, there's, I mean, <clears throat> definitely in the Buddhist community, there's a, a criticism of what people call mic mindfulness, right? This this idea of franchising meditation and turning it into a practice where you can take it into any corporate headquarters and and whatnot. And I should say that that in in our in my particular practice. This holding this question, what am I, is combined with a vow, how can I help? Like the, the two things come together. But um, first of all, I have friends who say that meditation, mindfulness meditation, even if it's without a bodhisattva or a saintly intention, is not morally neutral. That just the act of meditating, you have no choice. Like I said, so it's like, it's like standing in a pond and you say to yourself, I want the water around me to be peaceful. And so you you become stiller and stiller and stiller until it seems like the, the water around you is very peaceful, except that somebody on the other end of the pond starts thrashing, and all of a sudden there's ripples in the water. So it's not peaceful for you anymore, right? So you have no choice but to eventually go over and help that person to stop thrashing, that, so that the act of meditation actually causes a transformation um, within us. And, and, and I do believe that that's true and that sometimes we can't even see the transformation for ourselves, just as maybe that butcher didn't see the transformation or you, you maybe, maybe you don't see the transformation. But the other thing is that, first of all, we come to realize that for us to live meaningful and purposeful lives and to have that sense of meaning that we do, we, we become sensitive to the fact that we do have to help others if we want to feel as though we actually have a place in the world. It's just a, a need that we become sensitive to. I'm going to be like a dog with a bone with this because I I, I think you're you know I, I appreciate everything you're saying and I agree with it and and and, and uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a bit sort of doing my shtick of just kind of playing a role here but I but you know in in How to Be Alive your r- most recent book you are really addressing it to as we said before it's like a um the it's a instead of self help it's each other help you're really addressing it to people who want to live sort of in alignment with their values and do the right thing in the world and and be a constructive player in the world. And I just, it, 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 it did make me feel a little guilty again because I'm not sure when I was a young person, like, was I really thinking about that? And is that part of, as I, you know, my ambition, you know, and is that a missing piece? And do most people even think about that? Like, or, or I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm flailing a little bit here, but I, I think you know what I'm getting at, right? I think many people in our society are so stressed and so anxious that they can't get to the point where yeah. they're thinking about these yeah. things, and that's for sure. And that certainly, it's a big privilege. It's a you know, it's both both in terms of whatever dogma there is in Buddhism. It's considered a privilege to have what's called a human birth, and human birth I think of it as as a metaphor where um, it's uh, where you're actually not suffering too much, that you're seduced by luxuries, um, and so don't care about life and. Um, not 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 suffering so little that is to say that you're so life is so luxurious that everything is fine and why should you examine it or not suffering so much where you're overwhelmed by the suffering but that you're right in the middle that you're so it's a privilege to have that kind of place and it, you know in your own story actually that's kind of you 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 tell the story your story actually I was thinking just thinking now that your story as you tell it in 10% happiness actually kind of mirrors the story of the Buddha itself himself like you were in the palace you know you were really having a successful professional life and then all of a sudden 
you have like a panic attack on live television and and you actually have to ask yourself well wait why am why what is going on why am i alive and you have to find a method for for understanding that Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. So so that happens to people, too, that they they live at a certain level of stress and anxiety and they don't have time to take care of themselves properly and to think about these things until one day something cracks and, and, and then they and then they do. And and, and what's in, you know, in Zen, we say don't make self and other don't make don't make form and emptiness, like don't make separates. And. What really becomes interesting is that if you are one of those people who becomes so anxious or so stressed that they crack, what you find is that and, – and, and you're like, I need a meaningful, purposeful existence. What you find is that what's self-interested and what's other-interested actually turn out to be the same thing, that a lot of the actions that you end up – which is, what, by the way, what How to Be Alive is the, – the real philosophical underpinning of, of How to Be Alive is that those things that are actually best for us – even though we might be thinking 
that the Mercedes is best for us or the bigger house is best for us. The things that are actually best for us, like being related to other people, acting acting in accord with the needs of our communities, um, our health, those things that actually are best for us are better for the world. And those behaviors that are actually better for the world are, in fact, better for us. Okay, well, okay. so you think I would be doing the right thing for myself if I were to quit my job and go work at a homeless shelter? I mean, d- that would probably be maybe better for the world, right? No, uh, that, maybe- sounds, that sounds like uh, actually what that would sound like is that you had this really e- big ego investment in being able to say that you helped the world uh-huh. as opposed to what you would I, – I, not to not to overflatter you, but what I see in your case and, – and, and it's up to your own conscious, conscience to decide if you can do more of this – is that you're using your position in the world. You're using your privilege to actually help others. Like you, you, you have this podcast and other, other ideas that you're propagating in the world. Yes, but when I, but I do the podcast and maybe it, uh, you know, I, I get more listeners and maybe sell more books and build a bigger brand. And so how, it's hard for me to point to that as altruistic. Well, it may not feel altruistic right when you do it. But if you're looking for the feeling of altruism, if you're looking for, like, I feel really good about myself, then then that's kind of a certain uh-huh. level of self-involvement, right, too, right? right? right, right. This is complicated stuff because, I, I, again, I'm just, think, I'm just trying to channel some of our listeners who are, who are either doing meditation or just curious about it um, and maybe, you know, have jobs that, that you know, you, uh, you can't argue are, you know, clearly world – healing you know maybe i'm a i don't know i don't want to pick a job because then then i'm singling somebody out maybe they're news reporters right um i'll I'll say i'll single us out um and 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 you know there are lots of reasons to be a a news reporter and they they're on the idealistic spectrum i think there are a lot of them um but there are also uh, uh, ones that are less idealistic you know it can pay well it's uh you get a public profile um it's exciting et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I wonder w- whether we need to have a certain amount of thinking about, like, are we doing, is our job good for the world, right? Is our, is our life good for the world? But yes. we also don't want to be looking around for uh, a saintly feeling or a saintly image for the sake of feeling or being or appearing saintly. Right. So, so I'm going to turn your question around a little yeah. bit and just say, suppose I'm a listener and I feel in a job that doesn't give me purpose and meaning the way that I want, and I want purpose and meaning, um, one of the practices that I suggest is just to hold this question in your mind like a mantra. How may I help? How may I help? And I, I, knew, I know from experience that this, this – I don't mean for it to sound like all woo-woo and wacko, but if you actually hold this as a mantra and believe it as you say, how may I help? How may I help? then what happens is you find moments within the day where you can be helpful mm-hmm. even if you're in a profession that 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 doesn't work you know you might it might it might be as little as being you know just a little kinder to your own children it might be as as much as as changing somehow finding yourself changing the course of the company but many of us that's why i tell that story about the butcher many of us are stuck in positions that we cannot change and not all of us are going to be privileged to have jobs where we get to, you know, where we're social workers or, or, um, or, or where we care for orphans, where we get to so clearly say that we're helping people. And yet, 
the the world still does need bankers, and the world still does need news people. Mm-hmm. Um, we obviously we have that whole the whole conversation about how the news people are. You know what Trump's been saying about the news media at the moment in the election and all that. News is a really important part of the democracy. But so so in some ways the question is not do I have the job title that sounds as though I'm the most helpful, but do I use my job title? the position that I'm in to help, regardless of what that p- particular position is. I like it. I'm feeling better. <laughs> I don't know if I'm cream of ghee. But, um, uh, so, so speaking of using, uh, of, of um, the connection between having a meditation practice and, and um, wanting to be part of making the world a better place to live in, you wrote an inter- a really, really interesting blog piece recently that I want to get you to talk about. The title was provocative, called Does Enlightenment Matter When Police Are Shooting Black People? So tell me about what went into that. In my school... um, In your Zen school. Yeah, sorry, in my Zen school. Recently, um, uh, well, two things. First of all, um, I, like everybody else, have been seeing the news coverage of of our black, black fellow citizens being shot by the police and been appalled. And wondering what's my connection to that? What's my relationship? How can I use my position to help? And as a as a white, you know, I haven't said it, but I am a white man. Um, as a white man, how do I use my privileged position to help? Um, and um, an interesting thing happened. A thing that I did that would, it, in some ways, you could say was racist because, or at least bigoted, because um, somebody in my school who was a person of color became uh, a very senior teacher, and during those these ceremonies we have, students get to come up and challenge the teachers with questions. And I went up to this particular teacher and I said, and, and when you become one of these senior teachers, you also end up on the board of trustees on my school. And I went to this teacher and I said, now that you're one of these senior teachers, um, how are you going to help our school to be more diverse and inclusive? Well, it was only afterwards, that day, two, of, two teachers got this high position. One was white and one was a person of color. And it was only afterwards that I realized that they, I asked this question of the person of color because somehow I thought it was more his responsibility than the white guy's responsibility. So that tells me, by the way, that I continue, as all of us do, have to continue to examine my own situation with regards to race and whatnot. But anyway, as a result of asking that question about it, a lot of people from my school came and talked to me. And yes, we should be doing something. And so I ended up... Is it mostly what? Yes, it's okay. mostly right. Yeah. yeah, I would say 90% white. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so lots of people came and talked to me, and we should do something, we should do something, which, which in, in our school means we should do something, means you should do something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started to put together this race and diversity workshop, which in the first of, for, for our teacher training, which the first of which we did last year and the last of which we did um, this weekend, um, collaborating with others within the school, of course, and and because of that, I got asked to write this article for our school uh, newsletter, which was could somebody asked, can can I just r- write a uh, uh, an article on the relationship to Buddhism to race in our society? Um, and I think all the Buddhist schools, the yoga schools, all the spirits, the churches, the Christian churches, all of us uh, 
are seeing that there's a problem where people are coming and they they're they're almost trying to escape from societal problems by race like racism like the systemic racism they see by coming to meditation or by coming to prayer and in fact um what and and and, and chasing after some sort of peace or nirvana or enlightenment but but what is the point of those things if people are still getting shot and in our school we we have this question what is the function of nirvana so that's where that question, that, that question, does enlightenment even matter when, when police are shooting black people? That, that's what that, that title points to. What, if we have so much peace, now that we have that peace, what do we do with it? And, the, and, 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 and that's why I point to this thing that the more peace you get, the more you can't help but perceive the suffering of others. Once you really have that peace, you don't really have any choice but to help others. So that article was, was just about that. How, how does a white privileged meditator like me use his or her practice to actually find ways to help with the situation that we're seeing? So two questions, take them in whatever order you want. What is the answer to that? Um, and two, how is it going in terms of diversifying your school. Okay. So in terms of I, there there are many many answers and I don't want to suggest that I'm I I know the answers but I posited a, a few in this article. I mean, first of all is is actually to accept that so the bodhisattva vow, how can I help? Um, sometimes we think that it's an imposition. We have to hold the vow, like, how can I help? How can I help? But actually, I believe that it's already at the center of us and that our meditation practice is not about injecting this vow, how can I help, into ourselves, but removing everything else so that the vow, how can I help, can shine through. Right? I've talked about this a little bit before, but in Tibetan, some one of our previous guests pointed out, in Tibetan, the word for enlightenment means uh, clearing away and bringing forth. Well, me and your Tibetan friend are totally on the same page. We're BFFs because that, that's what I'm talking about. Clear away the stuff that, that's not really important to our natures and be left with what really is important. So, so to actually cling to nirvana, first as a, as a meditation practitioner or any sort of a spiritual practitioner, to understand that having heaven or, or, or nirvana is not the point of practice. That's, that's number one. And then to begin to ask ourselves, what, what I do in, 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 in all my writings, what I talk about is, what is how does my personal life intercept with the social problem that I see? So, um, so ways that I know that I can I can help where racism is concerned is um, I can go to my employers and ask them not to not to hire people through personal networks anymore. That we need a, a good um, uh, hiring policy that ensures that people outside our personal because because if you work in a white company and you hire from your personal networks then people with perfectly good qualifications who are people of color are not going to hear of those so change your hiring policy um, to uh, to to not just uh, diversify to make your own white organization diverse and inclusive I'm using air quotes when I say that diverse and inclusive but but as a white person actually participate and give spend your money with and give your power to and your support to black organizations or organizations run and owned by people of color like go and be part of those find organizations that are dealing with racism, the systemic racism in our society, and actually become part of that. Now, just to return to your thing, this is not about necessarily that you have to turn your whole life over to it and martyr it. But ask yourself, what's my situation? How much time do I have? What are the levers of power I have in my own life? And, and, and actually become mindful of that. That was your, that was your first question. And th- the second question about... Um, 
how's it going with the diversity effort in the school? Um, we had the second um, the second workshop just this weekend. And one thing I can say is that if you're going to run a workshop on such a charged issue as diversity and inclusiveness, running it amongst a, a, a bunch of Buddhists is the best thing you can possibly do because at least at least they have in the front of their minds the idea that they want to help and they want to be kind. Um, all the same, um, it's messy. It's really messy to talk about race, and I don't. You know, I it's 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 scary. No matter who you are, to talk about it, to to stand up publicly and talk about it, and then just to have conversations like we were in working group having conversations. Also messy because especially white people aren't used to talking about race. It's it's they just we it's like we're, we we live in whiteness, and so we don't we don't ever actually have to converse about it. So the con- what I can say in my school is that the conversation is starting to happen and becoming more and more robust. Was there uh, resistance, though? The kind of resistance that you get, you got, I got in my school and that you see in all spiritual disciplines, I think, and uh, having talked to a bunch of different people about this from other schools and orientations about this, there is this idea of if we just meditate hard enough or we just pray hard enough, we'll all become the kind of the kind people that will fix the problem. So we don't actually have to explicitly talk about race. We just need to meditate more, which is, if you think about it, that is a very privileged statement to make. That's a very white statement that I, we don't have to think about it. We'll just go away if we meditate. What, what, but, but, but if you're a part of a community where your members are getting shot, you don't, you don't think that. Um, so, so there's resistance in that regard, and that's that kind of same attachment to nirvana or attachment. I just want peace. <laughs> don't bother me with those details. Just give me peace. So a certain amount of resistance. What is our school becoming more diverse and inclusive? Um, I have to say, n- n- not yet. And and is that even the point? You know, because there's the, also the point is the conversation becomes: is it really about the survival of this institution and making this institution better, or is it about taking our, te- you know, taking our teaching to people who might need it where wherever they are, regardless of our institution? It's it's another very complex issue that I'm honestly just starting to become part of. It's totally fascinating. I mean, just for myself. I mean, I think this messy stuff is like where it gets good, yeah. right? You know, I mean, just the, maybe that's because I'm a rabble rouser by nature um, and a journalist. Um, you you may have mentioned before about me talking about some senior meditation teacher being divorced, and I expressed some sort of disappointment about. I can't remember the exact context of that, but I wonder if you could hold forth on this because you 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 said before that your own family configuration from what we saw in No Impact Man, where you had a wife and a child, things have actually changed for you too. And so can you talk about that in, in context of your own Buddhist practice? Yeah, you know, so we're just because we have a practice and we're spiritual animals doesn't mean that we're, that we're not subject to cause and effect, right? It doesn't, or what the Buddhists would call it karma and the West would call it cause and effect, but it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and it's just a fact of life, you know? And, and in all the stories in Buddhist literature, there are really sweet and kind Buddhist teachers. There are really kind of teachers that are kind of jerks. There are all sorts of different ways, but underlying their action is a kind of tide of compassion as opposed to everything turning out the way society thinks. One time, I'll, I'll say this, I was on a Christian radio show, and after How to Be Alive came out, and the, the woman said, uh, you're divorced, right? And I, I said, yes, I am. And she said, well, why should any of us listen to you about how to be alive when you don't even have the commitment to take care of your own family, right? And first of all, I said, like, how could you say anything like that to me? To anybody, how could you say that? But, 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 but I was fortunately fast on my feet 
on my feet. And my family configuration is like this now, that Bella, my daughter, lives half the time with me and half the time with my co-parent, Michelle. Michelle's this amazing person, also a writer, a correspondent, and she lives with her own partner. On Christmas Day coming, um, Michelle and Bella and um, Michelle's partner and Michelle's partner's parents are coming to my house for Christmas along with some other friends. We'll all celebrate Christmas together, and that's just an example of um, how you know we do all sorts of things together. What I said to this person on the radio show was, you she because she went on also about me and my husband have been married thirty years. I said that that you and your husband show commitment to each other and you're married for 30 years is great. But there is an argument to suggest that my commitment to Michelle is even greater because I'm not even married to her, right? And so my point is, I'm not trying to hold myself up. My point is is just to say that whether we are able to make all the different structures work and the marriage work and, and this work and that work, it's not really the, it's, 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 it's not a magic trick being a spiritual person. You know, sometimes we have this kind of spiritual materialism. If I just pray hard enough or if I just meditate enough, I'll, I'll, have, I'll get all the things I want. That's not necessarily so. What's more the case is if you do these practices that in spite of the tides of fate, that you'll actually be able to cut through your own feelings to be as compassionate as you can in the moment as things change. So well said. And I think I'm glad you brought up this statement that I don't even remember making because I didn't think it speaks to some of the naivete that a lot of that myself and a lot of people can bring to this process. Just because you start meditating doesn't mean even if you've been doing it for decades doesn't mean you're, you know, that stuff won't happen to you. That's right. And and I'm really going to, you know, to, I think the to me, the foremost the cream of ghee takeaway from this conversation to me is how can I help? That that uh, no matter what position you are, if you, you even if you ma- whether or not you make it a daily mantra that you're saying to yourself all day long, or or if it's just your orientation, then things are going to open up uh, for you. It seems to me. Um, where can we, uh, if people, and I suspect they will be, if people want to connect to you or read your books or learn more about you, where pe- where can people do that? So I'm on all the social me- networks, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at just Colin Bevan at Colin Bevan. And then at my webpage is ColinBevan.com. So I'll spell it because it's some people don't get it. It's C-O-L-I-N-B-E-A-V-A-N.com. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know.
Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi. I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.